0: Hey, this is Nicole Ferraro, Editorial Director at the Webby Awards. And Jason Brickhill, Social Media Manager at the Webbies. And we are
1: excited because the
0: nominees for the 22nd Annual Webby Awards have been announced. Woo! Yes, that means it's time for you to go vote in the Webby People's Voice Awards for your favorite nominees across all categories and media types including websites, film and video, advertising, media and PR, mobile sites and apps, social, podcasts and digital audio, and games. You can vote once in every category from now until Thursday, April 19th, and help your favorite nominees take home a Webby this year. Last year, over 3.5 million votes were cast during Webby People's Voice. That's a lot, so go make sure that your voice is heard in deciding the best of the internet and start voting now. Nicole, where do people vote? Vote Vote.webbyawards.com vote.webbyawards.com Go
2: vote!
1: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. This summer will be legendary. Create art kids you.
2: Bitch, better have my money. Design with passion. From Italy.
1: Hey, welcome back. My guest for this episode can easily be described as the authority of all things design, Paola Antonelli. She's a senior curator of the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art. Since starting at the moment in 1994, she shaped the ways in which the museum and modern culture perceive and define design. A large portion of her work has been to include digital technology in that definition. She's broken boundaries by including a collection of video games in MoMA's design exhibits, which was a serious faux pas in traditional art communities at the time, and even helped build the museum's first web page. We talked a bit about Paolo's background, from her education in architecture, and how she was plugged into early internet culture while still living in Italy, and quickly dove into a great conversation on how future tech will impact how we communicate with one another, her well-known R&D salon series on protests in the digital age, and much more.
2: I grew up in Milan, in Italy. I was born in Sardinia and I lived with my parents, you know, in different parts of Italy because of my father's job. But then Milan was their city and is my city. And I was here until 24 years ago when I came to New York City. And uh, my background is truly, I'm an architect by training. Before that, I studied also economics, but I switched to architecture. And from there, I switched or I just like grew into becoming a journalist and a curator and a teacher of architecture and design.
1: And did you move To the United States to study architecture?
2: No, no, no. I studied in Milan. Okay. I graduated from uh, the Polytechnic of Milan, and I started there as a journalist. I was at first at Domus, and then I was at Abitare. Okay. And at the same time, I was also teaching at UCLA. So my first city in the United States was Los Angeles, actually, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there full time. It was fantastic. And uh, it's also a great city for a little Milanese girl wanting to just, like, break away. And uh, it always gives me the sense of uh, freedom and lightness. Even though I knew architects and artists, it was was really hard work. And I got to probably see the best of L.A., but still it makes me truly happy, as does New York.
1: So you really started out journalism, writing about... Architecture. Architecture. See,
2: in Italy, there's people, at least when I was going to school, people didn't really go to journalism school or to curating, curatorial studies school. You would learn something and then you would either practice it, you would write about it, you would talk about it, you would curate it, which makes for maybe really bad prose in journalism, but really serious content. So the role of editors in Italy should be even more important. But so, yeah, I, at the same time, I was writing, curating. I I worked as an architect for six months, but I really was not good at it. So I rapidly moved to another field, another application of architecture and design. You seem a little
1: too relaxed to be an architect.
2: Well, <laughs> I mean, that I is don't a compliment. know. I just uh, I'm impatient. Okay. Um, architects take a really long time before they see something realized. At least, you know, at once upon a time. And also, I'm not a good politician or diplomat. And um, the biggest part of the work of an architect is dealing with clients and uh, with the powers that be, whether it's the city or the neighbors. I just couldn't deal with it.
1: Was MoMA the reason you moved to New York?
2: Yeah. I moved, to, I moved to New York. I, I, saw, I got the job by reading an ad in a magazine. It was ID Magazine, not ID, uh, yeah. the British one. Sure. ID was Industrial Design Magazine. And uh, there was the ad for the position. And I knew already the people at MoMA because of my job as a, as a writer. So um, I had interviewed also Terry Riley, who was the chief curator. So I wrote to him, and he was like, really? And then uh, I got the job. So I moved for that reason. And the move was quite, quite traumatic. Because I moved here in February of ninety four which was um a really terrible February in an infamous winter with seventeen snowstorms, so it was really tough at the beginning. but then uh, I got my first show, and I forgot all troubles. It's also
1: a really interesting time to move here for that role because it at least unless you were really paying attention to what was going on with technology, it was still before the world at large was really paying attention to the web and the internet. There was, you know, people were using Mosaic browser in 1993, 1994, people in universities and young people and people who were really into computers. But in terms of a a thing that the world was paying attention to. It was a little bit early still. And it's I really guess. become eventually a big part of what you do.
2: Yeah, here, right? I guess. You know, when I started there, yeah, now, when I said it, I remembered that the first uh, kind of official act I did was a, a page and a half memo on why I needed a Mac. <laughs> because I was staring at real floppy disk and an old PC with floppy disks and so I got my Mac and then and then I started uh buying to get email. And uh, uh, in 95, I had my first exhibition, which was about technology, but it was about technology of materials. It was mm. called Mutant Materials in Contemporary Design. And I wanted a website. And MoMA didn't really know what a website was. Um, so, you know, nobody wanted to sign off, communications, you know, development. Nobody knew what um, whose responsibility this was and I got a budget of $315 which I used to take taxes and pay dinners to um, a, a graduate you know like a, a teacher and educator at the School of Visual Arts uh-huh. that actually taught me HTML and coded the website with me so that was the first website for MoMA. Interesting. And uh, a few months later Barbara London did hers for her own exhibition and then it became a real website. So
1: you were already, before you got to Moma, you were already clued in or plugged in or beginning to get plugged into the internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I cannot really remember. I remember when I was living still in Milan that I had a fax machine, and uh, but I had also I had for a short time the Italian version of the Minitel. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, so I had that, and then I had a Mac, which I had brought in from the United States. It was it was very funny. I walked through the customs in Italy with a big bag with a big Apple in front of it, with you know like still with a rainbow. Yeah. Anything to declare? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> went through and so I had my uh, my Macintosh classic at home and I already had email. Yeah. But I don't know who taught me or it, well maybe I do cuz when I was working for Abitare and Domus, I was also spending time in Silicon Valley I remember uh, doing a piece on Ideo when they were still all engineers. Right. So I guess I was
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so for our listeners who don't know about the minitel uh, this was essentially, there was one in France, there was one in Italy. It was uh,
2: a... terminal. It was like, like this like, little yeah. terminal,
1: and you would sort of dial up different services, 3615-movies or mm-hmm. something. And Movies, you would get...
2: yellow pages, white pages. It was really very rudimentary. Yeah, yes. but a lot
1: of people had them mm-hmm. um, in, in Europe at the time, and yeah. to some extent, I think it sort of slowed down the... The web a little bit is interesting in, because people had this thing that already did some of that stuff. Ah, you, know? you
2: you might have a point. Yeah, it was distributed by the telephone companies, yeah. so in a way, it was their own uh, mean of uh, of distribution and dissemination.
1: How did you see the the role in in 1994? What was your take on what you were gonna try and do and bring and what was, why was it interesting?
2: See it's always an advantage when you notice right away that there's some glaring gap. It's you have your work cut out for you. And uh, uh, the glaring gap has not yet been remedied in the world. So many people in the world still think that design is embellishment, decoration is something that you apply at the end when a product is already engineered and ready to market. And uh, also many people think that design is furniture, that design is interior design. I mean, I encountered that every single day. So uh, great. I just like uh, uh, brought up my sleeves and I was ready to roll because... Design is so, so much more. And, of course, now that we spend uh, a great part, if not the greatest part of our life, uh, online, people also realize that there's a lot of design online, but the materiality of design used to be something that people could not do without. So I started out immediately trying to expand the notion of design, um, trying to use the amazing platform that MoMA is to uh, let people understand where design is and also let people appreciate it, right? So my belief is that in the past decades, people have started appreciating technology. And when it comes to certain creative fields, for instance, movies or music, they can appreciate what a director of photography does. They know what tracks are. They are uh, following on, you know, on, the, on SoundCloud the, all of the different tracks at the same time. I would like them to do the same for design. Appreciate the uh, rotation molding aspect of a particular trash can and just read the process in the final product because it is as enthralling as a piece of music it could be and it's very useful. People need to know more about design so they can influence manufacture, they can push back, they can claim uh, regulation and legislation. So it really is about being ultimately a fuller, better citizen and have a better understanding of life.
1: So your ambition and your thinking was to really expand the way people perceive design, not just coming to MoMA, but just generally using the platform of MoMA.
2: Absolutely. And it's not like I set out with this mission tattooed on my arm. You know, it's just something that you realize you're doing. And then in hindsight, you realize that you had that kind of mission. But I do believe the curator's job not all curators, but my type of curator, is not to tell people what's good and what's bad, but rather to present them relentlessly with uh, good examples or bad examples, depending on the occasion, so that they develop their own critical tools.
1: Tell me a little bit about the role of the museum at that time. And and I'm asking this question because I think in, you know, whatever it is, 23, 4, 5 years since then, uh, we've seen a huge transformation just as the world at large. Um, a lot of art now is digital. A lot of experiences are digital. And while certainly at that time there was some of those things, I think most people probably at the time, the public perceived art and design as physical things that they could maybe interact with or touch. Mm-hmm. And how has yeah. that changed? And how has it changed the way you, you know, the way you showcase that and the way you curate that here.
2: Yeah, there's two different sets or levels of reading of what you're asking me. On the one hand, the role of the museum in society transcends material or immaterial. It's about whether museums are repositories or whether they're workshops, and all the different metaphors that have been used for museums. But we can get to that later. I believe museums are the R&D of society. We'll talk about it later, perhaps. But when it comes to the object that is conserved, that is displayed in museums, you're completely right. It changed a lot. And actually, about two, three years ago, I I ran a series of programs to talk about the object and how it's changed when we can deal with an online dimension. So when it comes to museums of modern and contemporary art dealing with uh, uh, objects that are also immaterial, that opens up a fabulous Pandora's box of issues, from how do you conserve code, and I discovered that code is more fragile than porcelain. Those yeah. who think that it's easier are completely mistaken. And also, how you deal with the idea of ownership and and uh, responsibility, because for instance, when you uh, when you acquire into the collection an object that is governed by an end-user license agreement, for instance, a digital typeface or a video game. Uh, It's not an ownership, but because it's the Museum of Modern Art, it has to be a perpetual license. You know what I'm saying? So it's really fascinating. You entered this territory that is... um, very deeply also legal, but a a, a dimension of legal that is almost creative. In fact, I I really have a great time with the general counsel of MoMA, with all the lawyers that work at MoMA, because every now and then we have to tackle issues that are truly intellectual and conceptual, like when we decided to acquire or better anoint the at sign. Right. And I remember our um, our counsel Nancy Adelson saying, "Paula, this is definitely legally not a problem, even though conceptually it's really dense." You know, so it was really funny because she's right that you know, this was legally not an issue because it's in the public domain, but conceptually, what does it mean?
1: And, and just to un- unpack a little bit, really, the the big sort of like big changes at one point you brought up the vase museum brings a vase into a collection the responsibility the museum is taking on is really at the end of the day is to preserve that vase right
2: yes preserve and and show and
1: sometimes the museum owns it sometimes it's lent to it but that's the that's the that's the responsibility
2: well in a museum you have temporary exhibitions that are based on loans that then will be returned so the responsibility of the museum is um for that particular time And the reason for showing is because there's a thesis behind the exhibition. And then there's the collection. The collection is a long-term responsibility and uh, also the criteria have to be more stringent because um, there's no theme that supports that object. It has to stand on its own merit. And, uh, yeah, the responsibility is to preserve it, to show it, to make it accessible to scholars, and also to incorporate it into a narrative that in our case is about modern art and design.
1: And so how does that, when you think then about the at sign, just to use your example... How does that how does that challenge shift? You're no longer holding the ad sign and making sure it's well preserved. You're you're making sure people have access to it and can see it. Or how do you how do you think about
2: that? Well, and especially people have access to it and find it in the setting of the museum. So there's a displacement and a distance that leads them to think about it more deeply and to think about the role that it has in society and in our individual lives the uh, history behind it, its applications. And the ad sign is just amazing because it has all the characteristics of great modern design. And uh, from everything, from the reinterpretation of the past with current technology to the formal elegance to the impacts everything. And at the same time, it is in the public domain. So it also leads us to that shift. Uh, and in a way, even though we acquired it many, many, many years ago, many, 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 I mean, I don't remember That's how many, but it must have been 10 eight or yes yeah, it like must that. have been yeah. ten years ago. So even though we acquired it then, it, we used to say, in the uh, interviews at that time, that he brought the share economy into the museum, hmm. in a way, because yeah. you know it's about that. It's what we do today when we deal with cars, apartments, and many other um, and many other elements of our lives that we uh, use when convenient, and we pass on to others and. In a way, it was the same concept.
1: Yeah, and part of also, part of your work when you acquire something is to know everything about it too, right? Just to really yep. research it. and So you must have talked to Ray Tomlinson, I'm sure, and found we out the did. whole story about it. We and...
2: did. Ray was still alive at that time, and it was wonderful because, see, the whole sign story was very progressive. It's not like uh, we knew everything. It was an intuition one day that then... Um, then went through many litmus tests, and one of the litmus tests was to ask Ray, did you know what the at sign was? And he said, oh, yes, I did. And actually, my first email was about the at sign. Because, see, the at sign has existed since the Middle Ages. Oh, interesting. Now, that's the beautiful thing. You know, that's when I say modern design. So here you have something that was used by the handwriting monks, when they were copying manuscripts to kind of shorten the time that it took to write the Latin preposition ad, ad, which meant already connecting objects or connecting people to objects. So he took something that had existed continually since the Middle Ages and was on the teletype writer that he was using, and he found out what the meaning of it was and decided to use it in exactly the same way to actually become the symbol that shortened the lines of code that he needed to connect the name of the person to the machine.
1: Right. A little ways back, uh, there was this big, I don't know if you want to call it like a polemic, but now when I look back on it, it seems so silly that it was even a polemic. But there was this big thing where you brought in video games into Mm -hmm. the collection, and there was all these people writing about how this was like the worst thing in the world, that the MoMA was bringing video games into the collection, and that was going to be bad for art and all these things. And I think now any of those people probably will look back at that and just would probably think. I would hope that it's just, it was the no, silliest argument. No, some of them. Now.
2: Some of them. See, it was. Uh, there were not many people actually. There were a few, but they were vociferous and they were, you know, revered or at least well placed art critics. Mm. You know, like Jonathan Jones at the Guardian, for instance. And it was quite hilarious. Maybe he would think the same today. I don't think he would have changed his mind. But I was um, so. Um, So taken aback by those criticism by those critics, not because I couldn't take the criticism quite the opposite, but because it didn't make any sense. First of all, they hadn't even read the press release, and because they're art critics, they think that everything is art and that design doesn't even exist. So he was saying video games are not art, and I said I didn't
1: even go there.
2: Then he would say you cannot put pac-man next to picasso and i was like you know there are five stories in between you know but still and the whole the whole criticism was very ideological and um and also i was nobody has thick skin enough as not to be hurt by criticism and i am really thin-skinned but in that particular case i was not hurt at all i was just like almost with my jaw dropping, say, oh, no, no. I was embarrassed for them yeah. because their criticism was so not in touch with times and also yeah. was off because of this Pac-Man Picasso, all of these kind of blasphemous right. tones. There's lots you of know, things like in as the as moment if I were screaming something terrible in a church. And um, I just have to say it... Um, um, it is really helpful to have a department of design and also a department of media here at MoMA because so many of the criteria that are kind of fossilized uh, about art can be broken by these two departments first and by film. And then they can percolate up or down, however you see the hierarchy, to the painting and sculpture and the drawings department. So,
1: Can you explain <laughs> that a little bit? Like, What do you mean by the criteria can be broken or, well, or which um, ones might have been broken?
2: Well, I have to say, I think that we have uh, um, that we have had a great collaboration with other departments in breaking the barrier of digital. You know, so uh, even though it might seem very um, easy to say art is moving in the digital, so there we are. We we have to start collecting, we have to start showing, etc. I don't think it was as easy for people like the critics that that were so incensed about video games to accept that something that was not tangible and possibly with a brush and paint or an element of sculptural presence was art, right? Right, yeah. So I like to think that this museum, because of the wonderful interaction amongst departments, can help departments also uh, pave the way for each other. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I believe, for instance, that the media department has helped us tremendously in design with some acquisition. For instance, we acquired Max Headroom last year, which was really quite fascinating. And similarly, we helped them with uh, also figuring out certain protocol for acquisition, like how do you acquire a digital entity? What do you acquire? How do you preserve it? So... It's a much more systemic and complex um, set of issues that happens behind the scenes Mm. that are also really fascinating.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at com slash host.
1: You have a, uh, a salon series here. Yeah. And you recently held a salon series on uh, protests. I think one of the questions, if I'm paraphrasing, feel free to correct me, is is there a DNA to protests or protest movement? What I wanted to ask you is, what did you learn from holding the salon? Just mm-hmm. briefly, I'm sure it was, I know it was a couple hours and people can watch it online and we'll have the link in the show notes. But what did you learn from it? And also tell me a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about the design that goes into the organization of those things, if mm-hmm. we can. We honored the the founders and organizers of the Women's March last year at the Webbys. And, you know, predominantly because they used technology and the internet to organize what was probably the largest march in the history of the United States, maybe even the world, at least that we know of. Um, And it seemed like they had a very savvy skill at using the tools that were available. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you learned through that salon.
2: Every salon has a lot of preparation behind it. So we pre-learn, in a way. There's a wonderful research assistant that uh, helps me. Then uh, for, for each salon, we select four speakers. And, uh, uh, and those four are asked to prepare for seven minutes. But also, they send us a reading list beforehand. So we read a lot. And then we share the reading list with the people that are SVPS. So the beauty of these salons is that people People come prepared, or at least they come knowing how much we worked before. So they come with a certain, um, with a certain respect. So the, the questions usually are very good. You never hear those delirious kind of uh, commentaries. And uh, and altogether, I think they're quite adult uh, salons in the sense that the conversation doesn't start at the basis. It already is a little bit um, up in tone. When it comes to protest, we had four. Wonderful speaker, plus a fifth that was a surprise. So the speakers were Jamal Joseph, who used to be one of the leaders of the Black Panther movement here in New York City, Biella Coleman, who's the um, foremost authority on online hackers, and she wrote the book on Anonymous. Then there was um, Cadrian Young that is from the the Hoodie March movement. And then we had Steve Shapiro, who's a photographer that documented so much of the civil rights history in America in the 60s and 70s. And then the surprise was Tania Bruguera, the artist that had that beautiful installation at MoMA that was at the Havana Biennale in the year 2000, but then was closed after an hour because it was too much for Castro to bear. So it was really quite a beautiful salon. And uh, the prompt for the salon was, what kind of protest is effective today? What works? And what um, can we do? Is it only protesting with your wallet, like canceling, erasing Uber, that really can lead to some tangible outcomes? Or uh, does it still matter to gather in the millions all over the world? And I learned a lot. I learned a lot also from the prep work. I had never watched the Angela Davis video when she was interviewed in prison in the early 70s, and she was talking about violence, so the meaning of violent protest versus nonviolent. Um, I also learned about how the uh, decades change the, uh, um, the heaviness and the, the, the footprint of certain protests on people. My research assistant is from Milan like me, but she's in her twenties. And when I hear Tony Negri, to me, he is the mastermind of the Red Brigades. And so many of my friends were touched in tragic ways by tell terrorism. People the,
1: tell people what the Red Brigades were.
2: Well, the Red Brigades was the foremost terrorist uh, organization in Italy in the 1970s, responsible for the murder of Aldo Moro, among others. So real deep destabilization of the state and uh, and lots of fear and lots of tragedy. And he was the mastermind right now after having been taken in by France when Mitran was um, actually protecting all of these different um, outlaws from different parts of the world. He has become a very well-known political theorist. So To my research assistant, Antonio Negri is a wonderful political theorist and philosopher. So it's really fascinating to see how things change. And I'm sure that to some of the people that were in the audience, Jamal also was a reminder of a really difficult and dark moment while to... Me and to many other people, he's a great professor at Columbia University School of Film and, uh, and a contributor to the intellectual life of New York and of the world. So it's interesting to see how protest gets metabolized and, uh, uh, and its effects can be felt at a distance or not. But I have to say that in the end, like with every salon, there were no real answers To the initial question. Sure, of course. It's never about that. These salons are not about solving problems. They're rather about doing what New Yorkers love to do, which is talking about it um, with uh, a group of, at the same time, like minded and extremely different, uh, differently minded people. So I think uh, I definitely was enriched by what I I learned. Um, Do I think differently about protests today? Hmm. Perhaps. Well, how, how
1: important do you think, the? I mean, have you thought about, or maybe just something you guys haven't really looked at or covered, but just the role of design in galvanizing people to attend, to become active, to be interested? Because the tool set really, I mean, I think you could say, well, there was communications back then and there's communications today. It definitely seems from my perspective that the tool set has materially changed in you know the past. You yeah. could say 10 years maybe 5 years
2: design can be a distraction when it comes to protest like for the women's march we mostly remember the wonderful signs the signs yeah and also my pet peeve which is the pussy hat mm-hmm. um did they strengthen the protest or did they distract? Did they weaken it? Did they dilute it? So it's really interesting and it's it's fascinating because design can be an element of organization, an element of uh, focus, or also an element of distraction because it can aestheticize um, events or, or situations to an extent that um, hard to recuperate afterwards. But I have to say, The salons are not about design. They are museum-wide, and I try as much as I can to not focus on design too much. Otherwise, it it goes into that particular field. Sure. Design is nonetheless important, and uh, uh, I also think that some of the posters that animated terrorism and uh, resistance in the 1970s in Italy were quite remarkable. I would not touch them with a stick The same, in the same way I wouldn't touch with a stick uh, propaganda um, graphics from say mm. the Nazi party right, or sure. other because you know if you are the Wolfsonian in Miami which is a museum that documents propaganda arts that's fine but once again as a museum you need to know who you are right. and what you're doing.
1: One thing you've talked about I think a bunch in the past is how the role of technology, when really good, hopefully fades into the background. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw you do a really funny uh, piece with Stephen Colbert on his old show, and he talked a little bit about, you know, how the iPad should disappear, and he thought that was really funny. And I've heard you speak about this general concept. It seems like today the role of technology is, especially like smartphones and devices, is doing anything but that, right? That not only is it not fading into the background, they are actually taking on physical space and presence and psychological space and playing a really almost human role sometimes um, in our lives. Would you agree or how do you look at that?
2: Technology will always be part of our lives. It's how integrated it will be. And it's true. We still have to hold these bricks, and we have to have extra batteries for them, and we need to have chargers, and our life is filled with cables or anyway, with like headsets and uh, bits and pieces. But there are several companies that are working on neural implants, that are working, that are trying different kinds of prostheses to see what works. We're still far from a real integration of technology in our bodies and in our life that doesn't make them so cumbersome. I think that the psychological space will never go away. I'm afraid that um, the, uh, the different level and the different quality of communication is here to stay. And I say that I'm afraid because maybe since I'm not de- native digital, maybe I still feel sometimes a little bit of fatigue, but um, not that much after all. But still, I think that there will be changes in the way we behave. I have a f- I have a sense that there will be more voice communication in the future. I was talking about it, and I'm not talking about dictation. I'm talking about interpersonal voice communication. Um, much as I... I'm always uncomfortable talking with other human beings. I have to confess it. I have to admit that so much written uh, communication is useless and is just uh, a copping out, like a, an abdication of responsibility. So I have a feeling that we'll come to value more the um, risk-taking step of Calling another person.
1: What would you say about the quality of the design around our devices these days? Do you think it's, it's good or is it slowed down or do you think it's, yeah. it's a little boring?
2: It's a little disappointing, but um, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I remember um, we were talking about the Minitel before, but uh, at some point, it must have been 20 years ago, I don't know, Paper Magazine had distributed this device that looked like like a strange vulva, it was really weird, and it was very organic, and it had um, it had a rubber cover, and then it had a little wheel. And it was basically a device that was connected to the um, wireless network, the telephone network, and would tell you what was going on that night in New York.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't
2: remember that. Oh, my God. Wow. I still have it. It's oh. really it's a, it's a rarity. But at that time, that was maybe the time of also the Newton. So the design was, uh, was like over the top, and the technology was still quite a disaster. But there was um, a little bit of, um, of freedom and of risk in the hardware. Right now, the hardware is completely standardized. The innovation is left to the interface. And the interface in itself is uh, about overabundance, there's like too much. And uh, I feel that that happens every time there's a new technology or a development in technology. There's a moment of drunkenness in which we try. So at that time, it was the hardware. Right yeah. now, it is maybe the icons, the apps, the different ways to talk with your phone, look at your phone. Right, or, right. And then maybe we'll sober up.
1: I would love to talk a little bit about the, the design of how people are consuming information and just talk a little bit about voice because we were talking for a second mm-hmm. there about... Uh, people talking to machines, and I think you could one could say, uh, people used to consume the New York Times through a newspaper, or uh, the New Yorker through a magazine, or Art Byte through a magazine, and there was all these signs, and then eventually at their website, right, and there was all these signs that actually gave people some information about whether they could trust this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the interface, to some extent, was branded or it was unique. You could see where the information was coming from. Um, now people consume a lot of this information through Facebook or through Twitter, and a lot of the, a lot of the interface that people I think would use to help judge the information is is now uniform, right? Um, do you think that's having an impact on people's ability to judge whether information is credible and viable and good?
2: I can't speak for everyone, um, but I don't think so. I think that people. Uh, deserve more credit than we give them. I mean, I'm generalizing once again, but um, I believe that there are sources of information that are still reliable and that people, in most cases, as we have seen, it's not truly so, but uh, are able to detect and to gauge whether the information is credible or not. Of course, there's uh, ways to ghost and to simulate uh, reliable sources of information. But interestingly... And I don't mean to correct you or anything. no no, it's I am fine. trying to eliminate the word consumption and consumers and consuming from my vocabulary because I feel that that kind of passive role is what uh, provokes people into making gigantic missteps and believing the wrong sources. Hmm. So if we all stopped being consumers and were readers, citizens, uh, you know, just like active um, terminals of that exchange of information, maybe things would get better. You know, so I am glad that we've reached, I mean, even though it's been um, a really terrible path, but I'm glad that we've reached this moment of non-return in which Gigantic companies have to take responsibility for filtering yeah. information, uh, but yesterday, just last night, I was having conversations with different people that work in the digital realm, and we were talking about our favorite means of communication and i 'm not a very uh, acoustic person, so I am recording an, a, a, a podcast with you, but I have to confess. I need visuals, and without visuals, I don't compute. And uh, um, other people instead were really very comfortable in the acoustic realm only. And then yesterday I was also talking with somebody from The Guardian, um, which has become a very reliable source of information for people like The New York Times, like The Washington Post, and we were talking about what happens when uh, people are actively contributing. You know, The Guardian has now a model that also asks people for donation and they have a three-year plan and they are the second year and they're trying to gauge how that goes. Others, you know, Jeff Bezos taking over the Washington Post has surprised people with, with really having almost an idealistic attitude towards the newspaper. So I think that... Pe- readers of The Guardian, readers of The Washington Post, readers of The New Yorker are asked to be active. Um, I confess that I don't read, um, write magazine on conservative magazines and newspapers. Maybe they do the same. But I think that the best that we can do is not to be consumers.
1: My son the other day loves to, he's very, he's eight and he really likes information about things, you know. So he loves categorizing things. He loves information about animals. Um, and so he was telling me that a cheetah... Runs 200 miles an hour, and at first I was like, "Wow, that's so fast!" And then I actually thought about it for a second, and I thought, "A cheetah doesn't run 200 miles an hour." And then I asked him where he found that out, and he said he had asked Alexa how fast a cheetah runs. And then I thought that's strange. So then I went back into the Alexa thing and looked, and it turned out
2: 120. No, yeah, it's about yeah, it's a little
1: less even. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Alexa had looked it up on some website where it was right next to a peregrine falcon, and so Alexa thought that the cheetah was running the speed of the peregrine. That made a mistake. But there's something really interesting there in that Alexa just flattens all the information down into this uniform voice. And if you believe Alexa generally, like if Alexa's correct most of the time, you might start to really just believe everything. And you just don't have, you bring up the visual, you know, on the website, you would see it, you would see where it was. You just get a bunch of more information there, I think, to help you evaluate that, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a long way of asking you like how are you thinking about the design of of voice devices these days and do you, do you find that something um interesting and and how how well are they doing in terms of design
2: yeah many of these devices are designed by uh, a certain type of designer it's very interesting because the design world is quite split And uh, I think it goes back to uh, how expensive or non-expensive certain design schools are. So there are, in the past, the best designers, the ones that we admired, that we published in big magazines, etc., used to come from schools that were not that expensive. Say, Royal Mm -hmm. College of Art, uh, Once Upon a Time, or um, even the Eindhoven Academy of Art and Design at the beginning, these were schools where students would go, um, Cooper, U- Cooper Union, also yeah. you know, here in New York, students would go and would feel uh, empowered to take risks, to take creative risks, to try um, non-immediately commercial solutions, because they wouldn't get out of school with the burden of a student debt that would cripple them for hmm. decades. And instead... Right now, so many of the design schools, even the ones like the RCA that used to be so, um, so accessible financially, not accessible, you know, the, the exams for admission were really sure, tough. But sure. Even those schools um, have become more expensive because budgets have been cut for culture all over the world because culture is not yeah. uh, given the right metrics. This is another gigantic discussion. So, I see many um, designers going into immediately commercial design and therefore not convincing big companies to take formal or productive risks and instead going towards. A common denominator that is not necessarily the highest common denominator. Maybe not the lowest, but it's a middle one. Mm-hmm. So we see objects that are quite cylindrical in neutral colors. They cannot really be customized that much. Maybe the cylinder is cut at an angle, you know, right. so, but, and maybe yeah. wobbles a bit, but there's no daring. If you think of the first Macintosh, there's no equivalent of the first Macintosh in these devices. They yeah. don't come into our lives with a personality. Um, so
1: you think that's beca- that's, uh, some of that is because of the price of the schools and the burden of that debt that students are carrying?
2: I believe so. I know that it's crazy, Uh but uh, having seen it for a long time, and also there's a little bit of a split between the mentality of some of the big companies that tend to be on the West Coast and that think of design as product design, and instead there's so much design that is instead East Coast and Europe. This is a a gigantic conversation that we could have. But uh, so many of the uh, manufacturers of these objects don't even know the name of some of the most... Most famous designers that are yeah. instead um, in the space of furniture design or speculative design. Yeah. So there's a real disconnect.
1: Interesting. I have a friend who's a professor at SVA. Uh-huh.
2: Aha! Great. And he
1: uh, he was telling me he gave he gave one of his he gave his students a project. He told them that they could des- it was an, they were designing an object, um, and they could design anything, but they could not be the interface could not be a flat screen. And he said they were. He said they were just. They didn't know what to do. They, they were like in up in up in arms, upset, didn't know what to do. You know, it was like a big thing for them. They really pushed on them. It was the results? I think ended up good or great. But uh, it was. Yeah. A, yeah. That's where yeah, it all starts. Because it's all interfaces. I
2: I went to Mass University. Mm-hmm. I paid like a uh, hundred to 200 dollars a year. Wow. Yeah. No, I know. And so, um, I. Didn't have any overhead. I was also living at my parents' because that's typical for Italy. Uh, but I didn't have any overhead, so I was taking risks. I was, like, traveling to the U.S. I mean, I don't know what would have happened if I had come out of school with $150,000 of debt.
1: Right, yeah. That definitely changes Probably your perspective. Probably wouldn't be here on, today, yeah. yeah. What do you think about—are um, you considering curi- or, uh, collecting algorithms?
2: Well I never or did it designer. because I never did it because I feel that design needs to have at least one sense involved, right? I need for the object to be either visual or haptic, or it needs to be two the two things. I mm-hmm. mean, you could also say that music could be designed, but it's so complex that I don't go there. But an algorithm is a means to an end, so it would be. Even though I want to understand the beauty of code, and I've, I've been trying to actually study a little bit of programming to get to that, uh, uh, to get to that understanding and awareness still i think that an algorithm is a means to an end so it's as if i were acquiring the tool that will get me to the design right? right um and uh, i appreciate those who acquire algorithms and yeah. i know there was an auction a few years ago but i think an algorithm is poetry or it is a tool but it's or it is a piece of art but it's not design
1: interesting so mm-hmm. it would be the, inter- the to you the design piece would be the interface the potentially that yeah. interacts Interesting. The outcome
2: oh. of the algorithm.
1: I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Milan triennial, which is yeah. coming up next year. It's pretty soon. You're yes. you're one of the curators of, I think mm-hmm. there's two or three of you who are curating it.
2: Well, no, More. it's me. Just you. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm I so mean, sad. I have a great team. I have a great team. So it's going to be, um, it's, uh, the, the, it's in the building that is, the triennale. So, and it's also the building where I started my whole career. So it's kind of uh, it's wonderful because as a uh, as a student of architecture in my twenties, I was there as a gof- as a gopher setting oh, wow. up the show. So she the get Triennale, to show them, huh? yeah. <laughs> so the Triennial, it, it was founded in 1929, so it's been on, going on for a long time. And the building was built the building was built in the 1930s, and uh, and it's had this every three year uh, with the, some hiatus during World War II, and then in the past 20 there's been these exhibitions that were really marking the point in time with architecture and design. And uh, in this particular moment, it seems to me that we're dealing with big issues that are about uh, having severed some of the ties that connect us to nature. And when I say nature, I don't mean only trees and oceans. I also mean other human beings and I mean microbes. It seems like we've lost a little bit the thread uh, of how to integrate our life in the world around us. And uh, even though this kind of uh, uh, utopia, dystopia uh, um, outlook has been repeated many times in exhibitions, I am also responsible for it. I would like this time not to remain in the field of speculative and critical design, but rather to have a a, a triennale that presents viewers and citizens with real tools and possible strategies. It would be already enough if I were able to provide a taxonomy of possible issues that we should focus on. Right. So it's very wide right now because that's how I always curate. I start with a very wide idea that then gets sculpted as I find um, objects that support it.
1: And what do you mean by disconnect? Can you talk a little bit or elaborate on the idea of being disconnected from... The rest of the world, I guess is what absolutely
2: well when I um, when I present this concept, I often use that image that we've seen a few weeks ago in The New York Times that shows how in northern Guatemala a Mayan city that was much 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 bigger than one ever thought was discovered using a new technology that is almost like a sonar and a rad- radar at the same time. And, you know, the Mayan civilization is very fascinating because it was incredibly sophisticated and advanced, but it became extinct. And it became extinct over a period of 500 years. So it was a slow burn. It was almost like cooking a frog. And uh, I'm sure that the amazing intellect that was part of that particular people uh, might have perceived this ending that was at the horizon. But because, as human beings, we're lacking this sense of far away, few generations away, uh, they were not able to stop it. And uh, uh, we've been talking about the sixth extinction. I personally believe in it, and I believe that we will become extinct. I also believe that design can help... Help us design a more elegant ending so the next species will remember us with a little more respect. But I also believe that we should be more aware of time, we should be more aware of our position um, in the universe. I know that these sound very highfalutin um, concepts, but ultimately they are about perspective. So I would like this trinale to uh, give people a sense of perspective and also give people some active tools. Once mm. again, no consumption. It's about active tools that range from uh, examples that show that waste is not waste, but rather a new kind of material, right? Or examples that uh, are much more um, ethereal, perhaps. But like you know, you might know about Stuart um, Stuart Brand and his thoughts about de-extinction. You know, he talks about Are you familiar with that? I am familiar with yeah, So the De-Extinction Project is not about bringing back to life uh, T-Rexes and Brontosaurus. It's not Jurassic Park. It's about reintegrating in the world certain species that have become extinct that are maybe humble, like the passenger pigeon, but that were really important to the ecosystem and that, if brought back, could help us repair uh, some of the severed ties. One of the concepts that the uh, triennale hinges upon is the idea of reparations and I use this word that is so loaded I use it with respect and uh, with the awareness of what it means uh, because I truly believe there's an urgency um, to having instilled in us a sense of indebtedness towards nature and towards uh, also other human beings
1: Paola Antonelli thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast it's been great talking to you
2: thank you thank
1: you so much to paula for joining us on the podcast if you're here in new york we highly recommend you check out the moma's upcoming r&d salons all curated and hosted by paula at moma rnd.moma.org and you can follow paula at curious octopus on twitter our producer is Sebastian Day. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a chocolate babka. Thank you for listening and see you next week.